Hey, this is Eric Benson, the host of Climify, a podcast that connects design educators with climate experts to help bring more climate safe projects into our design classrooms. Through my conversations with these climate leaders, I hope to help you Climify your syllabi and to create the next generation of climate designers. In fact, at the end of each program, my guest co-creates a design assignment for you to bring into your classroom for your students. This season, we are talking to women leading the way in climate action through the lens of each of the drawdown.org solution sectors. You can tune in to Climify anywhere you get your podcasts or directly at climatedesigners.org forward slash edu forward slash climify. And we'd love if you join in the conversation on Instagram or LinkedIn at Climify Podcast. This is Incomplete Design History, a podcast that explores overlooked and ignored topics in graphic design history. It is our goal to deepen and expand the knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of design history. Because history is messy, it's incomplete. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Mandy Horton. This episode is about someone who was an awkward individual and a bit of a recluse, preferring the company of his cats and books. He was also a playwright, a set designer for theater and ballet, an author, and an illustrator. His genre-defining books had lots of illustrations, characteristics often found in children's books, except they were often morbid variations on the cautionary verse tradition, 17th and 18th century stories with a moral lesson for children. His stories may have followed this format, but they often left out the moral lesson. They usually had dark themes best described as gothic. However, his writing is humorous and highly intelligent. That combination might have made it hard to find an audience, but they became cult classics. He was also a major influence on the early landscape of paperback books. Through his extensive work with book design, he often gets stuck with the graphic artist or graphic designer labels. He didn't much care for labels, especially ones regarding his sexuality. In a way, he was a lot like his books. He defies genres and labels. To his friends and family, he was just Ted. We know him as Edward Gorey. Edward Gorey was born in 1925 in Chicago, Illinois, to Edward Leo Gorey, a newspaper man, and Helen Garvey Gorey, who was a stay-at-home mom. He grew up in Chicago during the Depression. Edward Gorey's father left his mother in 1937. They divorced, and Ed Gorey later remarried, having likely had multiple affairs before the marriage was officially over. Gorey's preference for the name Ted in his early years might have been a way to differentiate himself from his father, Ed. In his later years, it was perhaps a way to separate himself from his father as they were never very close. The Goreys moved around a lot, mostly in Chicago, though there was a brief stint in Florida where Ted kept a pet alligator that might have influenced some of his odd characters in his stories later on. Gorey described himself as an avid reader who taught himself to read at age three. 
By all accounts, Gory was highly intelligent and an exceptional student, at least in high school. He has even been called an autodidact, meaning self-taught and with a wide variety of interests. Not only did he read books by all the literary greats, but he also had an affinity for lowbrow books. He was a fan of murder mysteries such as Agatha Christie and the nonsense writing of Edward Lear. Some of his favorites included Ronald Furbank, Ivy Copton Burnett, and E.F. Benson. One of his favorites was The Tales of Genji, an 11th century Japanese literary classic written by a noblewoman and lady-in-waiting about courtly life. Despite his well-rounded tastes that included both high and low culture, he wasn't against speaking out against the acknowledged greats that he did not enjoy. He really disliked the work of author Henry James. And in an ironic twist of fate, during his career as a book designer, Gorey was commissioned to design several covers for Henry James' titles that were widely regarded in the industry. Gorey had this to say, Incidentally, I became very well known for my covers for Henry James, who I hate more than anybody else in the world except for Picasso. In 1942, he was accepted to Harvard. Gorey claimed that getting accepted to Harvard was fairly easy at the time, and that he would not have gotten in later. This claim might be true. Demand has gone up for college education, and Harvard has not dramatically increased the number of students it admits. Harvard only admits around 2,000 undergraduate students each year and has held close to that number for a very long time. The Freakonomics podcast reports that in the 1970s and 80s, the acceptance rate at Harvard was around 30 to 40 percent. This number is now around 4 to 5 percent. It was likely considerably higher in 1942. One report puts Harvard's acceptance rate as high as 85% in 1940, but this number is unconfirmed. Despite being accepted to this prestigious school, he did not start right away. He was drafted into the Army shortly after the U.S. officially entered World War II and deferred his college entrance. Gorey remained stateside throughout the war, spending most of his military life in Dugway, where the Chemical Warfare Services tested all of their chemical, biological, and incendiary weapons. He said that the only thing the Army did for me was delay my going to college until I was 21, and for that, I'm grateful. Gorey finally enrolled in Harvard in 1946, and his tuition was paid for by the GI Bill. He intended to study commercial art at Harvard. He had been drawing for quite some time, but when he finally began his coursework, he ended up studying French. He wasn't a stellar student at Harvard. In fact, he ended up on probation many times and had to talk his way out of it, promising to do better each time. After graduating from Harvard, he struggled to get by in the Boston area for some time. Eventually, he was offered a full-time gig as a book designer in New York City. He initially turned it down because he was certain that he would not enjoy living in the city. But since his prospects in Boston were no good, he did take the job when he realized he was slowly starving to death. He ended up living and working in New York City for 30 years, but it never really grew on him. He escaped to the Cape whenever he could, living there part-time from 1963 on and moving there full-time in 1983. Gorey's first job after graduating was as a book designer for Anchor Doubleday Books except he completed his degree in French, which did little for him in this role. 
The obvious question here is, how did he get an offer as a book cover designer at all? His friends Barbara and Jason Epstein were editors at Doubleday. In 1953, Jason founded Doubleday's subsidiary, Anchor Books. This new venture for Doubleday published reprints as inexpensive paperbacks. Mass market paperbacks were relatively new at this point. The first line of paperback books in the United States was launched by Robert DeGraff in 1939, who had the idea to publish classics and bestsellers in this much less expensive format. Author Mark Derry of Born to be Posthumous, a biography on Gorey's life, explains that before this time, book buying was an elite pastime, as hardbound books were expensive, so much so that they served as status symbols for an elite, privileged class. The paperback revolution would have been a major step in making books more widely accessible. In histories of graphic design, it is often presented that the printing press was the major technology that made books accessible during the Renaissance, and that prior to that, only the extremely wealthy, mostly churches, monarchs, and members of the nobility, were able to afford handwritten books that preceded printed books. So while the printing press allowed for the mass manufacture of books, leading to their widespread use, and had a significant impact on literacy rates, it should be acknowledged that it wasn't until the 1940s and the popularization of paperback books that really allowed for everyday people to afford books. Before that, they could still be considered a luxury item. Publishers had not made this venture yet before, because even though paperbacks had been around for a while already, with printed pamphlets and the like, they were not yet certain that there was a market for books anywhere besides the upper class. Since the middle and lower classes didn't often splurge on hardcover books, would they be interested in paperbacks? Or were they interested in books and reading at all? The answer was yes the paperback industry would become very successful and allow publishers to sell books at twice the number as just selling hardcovers. There are people who prefer and can afford hardcover books. Then there are those who prefer or can only afford paperback editions, which today are usually released about a year after the publication of the hardback. This strategy allows the publishers to make their money on the hardback first, the fear being that fewer people will buy the hardback if the cheaper paperback is available at the same time or too soon after the release of the hardback. Occasionally, if a hardback book is selling really well, the paperback will even be delayed. Still, some books that the publishers don't see selling well in hardcover might be released as paperback only. These are books that would likely not have been published before the paperback revolution because they would have been regarded as a financial risk. Yet the investment for printing and producing paperback books was much lower, meaning much less risk. Likely part of the reason that paperback books did become so successful is that popular titles were distributed in paperback form for free to the troops during World War II, creating an audience and a demand for them. Many of these troops also went on to become college educated thanks to the GI Bill, which had the effect of both expanding access to education and the middle class. Government funding for education has the power to improve people's economic status and the economy, and it did. Paperback book sales surged after the war. Many new and existing publishers began their own imprints of paperbacks, which created a demand for book designers. 
Barbara Epstein was a friend of Gorey's from Harvard and was very familiar with his illustration work. She thought of his work as genius and had a strong sense that he would make a great designer, and she told Jason as much, who respected her opinion and offered Gorey the job. Gorey, however, was not trained as a designer, so while he had no trouble completing his illustrations, the text was another matter. He had never been taught to spec type, so he learned to compensate for this by hand-lettering many of his cover designs. This ultimately became an asset as people were drawn to his quirky, sometimes scratchy, and always imperfect lettering. Other designers even went so far as to ask Gorey to do the lettering for their covers. Gorey claims to have been less than enthusiastic about his technique, though this might have been part of his self-deprecating manner that he was known for. His art director at Anchor Doubleday was Diana Clemen. Having a female art director in the 1950s was also remarkable, as we saw in season one of the podcast. Women in the design industry at all would have been notable post-World War II, let alone one in a leadership role. Though it would certainly become more and more commonplace, leadership positions today are still mostly held by men in the industry. Edward Gorey worked for Anchor Doubleday for seven years, from 1953 to 1960, and Clemens states that Jason Epstein was such a fan of Ted's designs that he would have assigned him to design everything that came out of the publisher, but Clemens took a hard line against this. She too was a fan of his work, but was against having everything look the same, as some publishers were becoming known for. In 1960, Jason Epstein became involved with another project called the Looking Glass Press, which intended to make children's books more affordable like what Anchor was doing for adults. Gorey followed him to this new venture. Unfortunately, the Looking Glass Press was never able to manage to become profitable and was shut down. Still, during his time there, Gorey made many significant contributions to illustration and book design, including perhaps most notably an illustrated copy of War of the Worlds. After Looking Glass, Edward Gorey was hired as an art director at Bob's Merrill, another book publisher. This was a short-lived position. Boob's Muddle, as the employees, including Gorey, referred to it, was apparently suffering from management issues and several employees were fired during an overhaul, including Gorey. After this, Gorey had enough work coming in to begin a career as a freelance designer. He decided between that and publishing his own books, he was able to make a decent living. While his book covers often incorporated color with limited palettes, his illustration work was largely black and white which contributed to the dark, morbid, gothic themes that are often associated with his work. He was also known for his incredible line work and extremely detailed cross-hatching that imitated the look of etchings from the 18th and 19th centuries. He often layered patterns on his figure's clothing and background, which could have a dizzying effect, yet also added notably to his oeuvre. He was also known to create landscapes that had a lot of sky for his designs. As such a convenient place for text, the open area was used for the title and the author of the book. Even though he was busy illustrating and designing books for other authors, Edward Gorey published around 40 books of his own. Most Gorey fans are more familiar with his books than the work he did as a book designer. His first book, The Unstrung Harp, was published in 1953, the same year he was hired by Anchor Doubleday as a book designer. 
Gorey's books didn't fit nicely into one genre, which made it hard for publishers to promote and sell his books. As a result, he was constantly publishing with new or different publishers in order to try to find the right place for his books. In the early years, he switched publishers a lot because of this. And ultimately, he would find the most success with two publishers, his own company, the Fantod Press, and Gotham Bookmarts Press, the iconic Manhattan bookstore that had the most success selling Gorey's books. Of course, some stores thought his work was offensive and refused to carry them altogether. The key to Gotham Bookmart's success was how the bookstore's original owner, Francis Setloff, placed Gorey's books right by the register where customers thumbed through them as they checked out. Impulse buys were easy. The story goes that even David Bowie bought one of Gorey's books at Gotham Bookmark using this tactic. While it is easy to get distracted by his extremely detailed illustrations, his books should be equally regarded for their writing. In short, they were masterpieces in and of themselves. Gorey preferred not to have too much clarity in his work. His words were carefully chosen and often ambiguous. Many of his early works were printed in limited runs. As he gained a following, his publisher Andreas Brown from the Gothic Bookmark Press, successor to Francis Setloff, convinced him to re-release many of his early works in the anthologies Amphigori, Amphigori II, Amphigori also, and Amphigori again. Many interviewers asked Gorey about his sexuality, and he often avoided answering the question, preferring ambiguity over answers. That same ambiguity was a theme of his books and other creative endeavors, and it left audiences and readers with more questions than answers. Most commonly, however, he claimed to abstain from sex altogether, stating, I am fortunate in that I am apparently reasonably undersexed or something, alluding to perhaps an asexual lifestyle. Since it seems he never engaged in sexual activity, same-sex or otherwise, it has been posited that he was asexual. We can never truly know what Gory's sex life was like, but we do have enough of his correspondence with his close friends to indicate that his sex life was nil. That's not to say he never had crushes or infatuations. He did, and he wrote at length about them in his letters to his friends. And all of his crushes or infatuations were with men. At Harvard, Gorey's roommates and close associations were mostly gay men, which author Mark Derry calls the gay literati. This included his close friend and roommate, Frank O'Hara, who would become a writer, poet, and art critic, as well as a curator for the MoMA. There was one interview in which Gorey responded by saying, I suppose I'm gay, but I don't identify with it much. Gorey lived his life his own way. He was a hipster before being a hipster was a thing. While living in Manhattan, he was often spotted around town in floor-length fur coats and worn keds, or perhaps Converse sneakers. The fur coats were so well-known that noted New York Times fashion critic Bill Cunningham wrote about them in his article, Portrait of the Artist as a Furry Creature, on January 11, 1978. Gory owned coats in mink, beaver, sable, raccoon, and some were dyed outrageous colors, such as blue and fluorescent yellow. He said bright yellows were his favorite. It has been said that his fur coats were a nod to Oscar Wilde, the notorious Irish author-poet and gay man whose work is associated with the British aesthetic movement. As a side note, Wilde was charged in 1895 with gross indecency, the legal euphemism for gay sex, which was deemed a criminal offense. 
Sadly, the charge was a career-ending event in Wilde's life and possibly also a catalyst in his early death. Gross indecency laws have only recently been repealed. England in 1967, Scotland in 1980, and the United States in 2003. Corey would later become deeply involved in animal welfare. He stopped wearing his fur coats and made provisions in his will for a charitable trust with his estate to support the cause. He was known to wear a lot of rings and necklaces, and at some point in the late 70s, earrings. There has long been an association with gay men having their right ear pierced as a sign of their sexual preferences and as being part of gay culture. But even this designation has been debated, leading some to worry which ear meant you were gay and which ear meant you were a rebel. Gory pierced both his ears. The piercings might have had more to do with Gory's preference for Elizabethan culture than gay culture. According to author Desmond Morris of The Naked Man, a study of the male body during the Elizabethan era, it was fashionable for men to wear earrings in both ears. Though it's probably a stretch, Gory's fondness for the ballet has also been cited as part of his place in gay culture. He was a regular at the ballet and claimed he attended every performance. When he was splitting his time between New York City and the Cape, it was the ballet season that dictated the time he spent in the city. If Gory was gay, why did he avoid relationships? Why did he never come out? Some historians posit that mainstream culture regarding homosexuals and homosexuality when Gory came of age might have something to do with it. Take Harvard, for example. Several students who ran the news magazine, The Harvard Advocate, had recently been kicked off campus for being gay. This seems to have happened just before Gory's time there. But also during his time, several other students were expelled for being gay and or being caught engaging in illicit activities, as it was called at the time. One student even committed suicide over his punishment. The fear of communism or those with communist sympathies infiltrating America fueled the Red Scare. But less often discussed was the Lavender Scare, which took place alongside it. The idea behind the Lavender Scare was that the gays and lesbians working in federal government positions were a liability and susceptible to espionage and blackmail from the Russian or Soviet actors. Further, gays and lesbians were viewed as, quote, unstable, suffered from mental illness, had perverted morals, were subject to blackmail, had questionable associations, were prone to disloyal behavior. If these rationales were as dubious as they were copious, they nonetheless cost tens of thousands of jobs in agencies as diverse as the National Security Agency and the U.S. Postal Service, creating a lavender scare far more extensive, potent, and long-lasting than the fabled Red Scare." Unquote. Despite these claims and concerns, there is no evidence that a homosexual has ever been shown to have been blackmailed into revealing security secrets. Religion, politics, policies, and the larger rejection of homosexuality by mainstream culture may have led Gorey to repress his own tendencies or reject them altogether. Many literary critics also cite repressed gay themes in his books, like The Other Statue, The Fatal Lozenge, and The Glorious Nosebleed, but also in his book cover designs, like the one he did for Herman Melville's Red Burn. Biographer Mark Derry discusses Gorey's sexuality at length in Born to be Posthumous so much so that it has drawn criticism from some who prefer not to label Gory, which is arguably the right thing to do since Gory himself avoided the label in his own lifetime. Yet Derry argues it is important to at least mark Gory's place in gay culture, 
because the absence of a history of gay culture is tantamount to erasure. Derry makes an excellent argument about why we should care about gory sexuality. He states, I believe we should care about gory sexuality not just because it sheds a revealing light on his inner life, but because he's one more example of the centrality of queer culture's contribution to the arts. Critic Thomas Garvey proposes the notion of the glass closet, inhabited by public figures, like Gory, who simultaneously operate as both gay and straight. He goes on to point out that Gory kept perfectly mum about his true nature to the press. He only spoke about it in his art. Others postulate that his refusal to be categorized as gay might be an indication of his distaste for binary categories, definitions, and descriptions. Gory himself said, I'm neither one thing nor the other particularly. Edward Gory was many things in his lifetime. He was a book cover designer, an illustrator, an author of short illustrated works of fiction that had a cult following. He designed sets and costumes for theater and ballet, and he even wrote some of his own plays. But where does Gory's work fit into the graphic design history canon? Or does it? His work is very different from other book cover designers who are considered part of the canon. Paul Rand, who designed for Knopf, and Alvin Lustig, who designed for Meridian Books and New Directions. Both created designs that fit distinctly and neatly into the realm of modernist design. Was it their role in modernism that got them included into the canon? Also, remember our episode on Elaine Lustig-Cohen from season one? Her work was, at first, very much informed by that of her first husband, Alvin Lustig, who she worked closely with in his lifetime and took over many of his clients after his death. She, too, was largely ignored by the canon despite her modernist tendencies. Perhaps Gory is excluded since his work is not modernist. Maybe it's because he worked on paperback books, which, because of their low cost and wide accessibility, were considered to be low culture and a lower form of graphic design compared to high culture hardcover books and their designers. Another argument for his exclusion could be his association with camp. Calling Gory's work campy or kitschy might just be a form of cultural gatekeeping in which the work of gay authors and illustrators are criticized as camp. And what is camp? Susan Sontag's seminal essay, Notes on Camp, is a great reference for what is and what is not camp. But at times, this work seems counter to its own rules. Sontag describes camp as things from a serious point of view are either bad art or kitsch pointing to the close association with camp, low art, bad art, and kitsch. But then she goes on to point out that not all camp is bad art. She claims that the ultimate camp statement is, it's so good it's awful. If this is the best way to categorize camp, then in my opinion at least, Gory is not camp. There is nothing awful about his work. Sontag also describes camp as something not defined in terms of beauty, but in terms of artifice or stylization, and Gory definitely had a distinct style. Sontag further describes camp as a decorative art, emphasizing texture, sensuous surface, and style at the expense of content. Gory's hatching techniques, intricate patterns, and line work do emphasize texture, and his illustrations could be described as having a sensuous surface and style, but not at the expense of content. Sontek also includes a list of items in the canon of camp, which includes Tiffany Lamps, Aubrey Beardsley's drawings, Swan Lake, and the novels of Ronald Furbank and Ivy Compton Burnett. 
This list does not include Gorey, but it could be described as Gorey adjacent, as he was a fan of Furbank and Compton Burnett's work. So much so that literary critics have pointed to a clear inspiration from Ivy Compton Burnett. And his black and white drawings could be likened to Beardsley's, not only in terms of the color palette, but also in their use of line, pattern, and dark or morbid themes. Is camp not accepted into the design canon? According to Sontag, Art Nouveau is one of the finest examples of camp, and there is no question about its place in the design canon. And if all of that isn't confusing enough, according to Richard Snyder Jr., camp is closely associated with the gay community and culture before gay liberation, and is hard to define due to its secrecy of message, use of innuendo, and need for plausible deniability. Schneider also describes how some artists were known to play the freak in a way to disguise their sexuality even while broadcasting it, which could easily describe Gorey's fashion statements. To critics and curators like Clement Greenberg, who stigmatize illustration as less than and who consider commercial art and graphic design as low culture, Gorey's work is firmly kitsch. But designer, educator, historian, and prolific writer Stephen Heller emphatically argues that Edward Gorey's work as a book cover designer were astute interpretations of the text, handsomely designed and smartly composed, which acknowledges the high quality of Gorey's work rather than making arbitrary designation of high culture. In his lifetime, Edward Gorey became so well-known, so iconic that terms like Gorey-esque were coined and continue to be used to describe work he obviously inspired. And his influence is rather widespread. His work inspired Tim Burton and is referenced in the Perfect Drug music video by Nine Inch Nails. Daniel Handler, otherwise known as Lemony Snicket, author of a series of unfortunate events, credit Gorey's writings as major inspiration of his work. In 1950, the New Yorker turned down one of Gorey's illustrations because his characters were too strange, while the ideas we think are not funny. But in December of 1992, his work graced its cover. Despite all of his contributions to book design, illustration, and publishing, despite his work as an educator for SVA, Despite being well-known with a highly visible professional life, and despite his contributions to queer graphic design culture, he's not referenced in textbooks, and it is likely that only aficionados of book cover design and illustration history will know his work. Yet Gorey's work isn't canon, at least not in the traditional terms of graphic design history, and his exact role in that history is, like the man himself, rather difficult to define and perhaps that's how he'd prefer it. This episode was produced with the aid of a grant from the University of Central Oklahoma. Research and writing credits for this episode are from me, Mandy Horton, with additional research assistance provided by Taylor Hill, Dean Kelly, and Colby Strahler. Story editing provided by Spencer Gee. Sound design and engineering by the University of Central Oklahoma Center for E-Learning and Connected Environments. Music by Christina Giacona and Patrick Conlon of Onyx Lane. If you would like to contact me about this episode or about the podcast, please email me at hello at idh.fm. That is H-E-L-L-O at idh.fm. Our website can be found at idh.fm. You can also connect with us on Instagram at Incomplete Design History.